And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, 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 now. Hello and welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Good to be back after our August break. It feels like being uh, back at school a little bit. Um, we are here to look at the arts, the culture and the people of East London. But the issues we cover, as usual, go way beyond the East London borders. My name's Nia Charpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise and Daniel Manning. Yes, hello. We have a great show coming up. This week we'll find out how the 2012 Olympics had a surprising and perhaps unwelcome effect on the community of boaters on London, London's canalways. when I hear from Genevieve Kay, who's lived on the canals for years. And keeping with an Olympic theme, later on I speak with Gavin Poole, CEO of Here East, a massive development to regenerate the Olympic Media Centre. And a little further along the canal, I take a tour of Cody Dock. We also have singer-songwriter Chris Belson, who has an incredible voice, in the studio with us to do a live session and tell us all about his upcoming EP. And as the film Legend about the Cray Twins is out this week, starring Tom Hardy as both Reggie and Ronnie uh, Cray, we delved into the Eastcast archive for an interview we did with uh, someone knows who, who knows a thing or two about the Crays. And that was a taste of what you can expect from a brand new project we've just launched that involves you, our listeners. More of that later. First, I don't know about you, but I'm always quite worried about wasting food. And on a grander scale, what happens to all the food that's perfectly edible but destined for landfill? I teamed up with Patrick O'Hare, a social anthropologist specialising in waste, and we talked to a couple who have created a community-run waste food cafe called Save the Date. We're essentially in a car park in Dalston, behind the bootstrap building, which is on our right here. And we've got some vegetables out here, so anyone can just come and... Yeah. That's Pick exactly it. This is our surplus. We're, we're trying to encourage you to get your vegetables before you go shopping and then use more local shops to go and get the rest of the little things you need. We just encourage people to only take what they need. Yeah. Okay, so then we come in and there's the menu on menu. the on the board. What's on the menu today? Today is, um, so it's like an aubergine and red pepper pasta. Um, we've got like tomato and paprika tart. We also just made a peach and lime mint ice cream which we tried earlier which was delicious you yeah. can either go right to our relaxed sort of van area which is a bit more of a cosy sort of atmosphere for larger groups and then 
they take you out to the back amongst the herbs and all the flowers that are like is our edible garden which is all smaller seating which is all Hackney Herbal who are another organisation in the area and we also share with um, the bootstrap bees so then we have the, the kitchen this is where the magic happens exactly. obviously. you took the words out of my mouth <laughs> our tiny little kitchen as of tomorrow we move everything to the right into the shipping container I'm James I'm the co-founder of Save the Date Cafe. Uh, I've been doing this, well, since August, and before that I was a chef for about 10, 12 years, floating around different restaurants and stuff, seeing the shocking levels of waste. I'm Ruth, I'm uh, co-founder of Save the Date Cafe. Um, I used to work in admin um, as a PA and randomly saw a video of the real junk food project. They were set up in Leeds in a cafe in Armley and the founders, that, well two of the founders had been travelling in Australia and worked on waste food barbecues. So they came back and looked into actually opening a venue. They managed to find a space pretty quickly because there was a charity that had just set up the kitchen and they weren't going to be able to use it anymore. So they took over the kitchen and the cafe space and they set up from there and then they were spotted by The Guardian. So there was a feature in The Guardian about them and all of a sudden there was a lot of press interest and different people contacted to actually set up cafes. I contacted the Real Junk Food Project, asked if there was anything in London. They said no and then said, well, why don't you set it up? So we did, yeah, we did. <laughs> basically. The and then we real just... form was actually finding a venue to host it. So we spent, yeah. what was it, four months searching for this place uh, and then yeah. actually they found us in the end, which yeah, we were just at sort of... Thing our tethers then like oh no it's never gonna yeah, happen london's too fierce the rent's too high people can't see this sort of project happening and then we put something on facebook because we hadn't said anything for two weeks and then bootstrap were like we'd like to see that come and have a look they Gathering gave speed. us six months three rent but they gave us three weeks to build a kitchen so between mm. us and a group of volunteers we built an entire kitchen in the rain gale force winds so like three weeks 20 pairs of chapped hands later we managed to open so didn't spend a penny on what we did we um, didn't have any money when we started we so had absolutely nothing so we had to scavenge like pallets and stuff we there was um, mass land behind us was being refurbished so we got a lot of their old stuff whereabouts do you source most of your food waste then uh, well originally we used to actually go and collect it from markets and yeah. things like that but it's turned around since we've got busier and since we were in time out people have actually started to deliver food to us so we've had quite large deliveries. We get things from a company called Natura. We collect from Nando's every week. The bakers just down there actually give us some bread. Um, like that's the Dusty Knuckle, or our neighbours. And then we get some from other places too. And then we just get people dropping stuff off, don't we? we like 90% of everything that we use is waste. Obviously, you've got to bulk out some things. We're at a point now where we actually get too much food. So we are now redistributing it to other charities and yeah. other groups around the borough. Like, and we've become like almost not only just the cafe, just a distribution hub as well. There's actually a new app that's been launched as well recently called Olio. We've been posting on there for people to come and collect vegetables and things. What are the ingredients that are necessary in order to create a, a real junk food cafe? The main one is passion about the waste. Oh. Like You care about what you're serving. I mean, you can pick up the skills like being a chef or cooking or serving on the way, but... If you don't have the right sort of passion and drive to want to do waste food, you won't do it because you probably wouldn't touch it with a badge pole. 
and that message will never get put across to your customers like they could just come and think it's a normal restaurant otherwise for us especially though it's our volunteers yeah. it wouldn't exist without our volunteers we wouldn't have a building without our that's volunteers that's what I mean they all have that passion we yeah. don't just have people who come in here looking to fill two hours of their day because they're bored at home they've all approached us our volunteers yeah. now because they were interested in food waste before and they wanted to do something good with it. So. And I think the fact that everybody's had a chance to build it up, make changes and like sort of bring whatever they want to to the project without it being overly monitored, it's become really organic in its growth. Um, so let's talk about the name of the, the project or the, the little yeah. enterprise here. So you're part of the Real Junk Food Network, but yeah. you've, you've gone for the name Save the Date Cafe here. How yeah. did you so decide on that? It's dual purpose First of all, it means save the date, as in the use-by date, best before date. Let's actually just save what you're eating and not ignore the date. But then, obviously, the Real Jump Food Project is our sort of main is let's really feed the world. So it stands for the date, save the date for when we end world hunger as well. For us, it seemed to work quite nicely. It's got this nice double meaning. It makes people think a bit as well. And also by the, the system you have here, which I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, about people don't come and um, pay a set price for their meals, you all, but they pay as you feel, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah pay as you feel. So could you tell us a little bit about how that, how that works? The reason we use it is because if you came in here today and you ate a burger, say, and I said £6.50 to you, you'd pay me £6.50, leave out the door, and you'd never think about where that food came from. And so how did successful do you think you've been in uh, either bringing together different parts of the community or even creating a community here? I mean, do you manage to bring together hipsters and homeless people? Yeah, <laughs> that, that was just, yeah. it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. But uh, <laughs> my favourite day ever was when we had the homeless person next to a hipster, next to a guy in a shirt and tie, and it was like, there's a photo of it somewhere. And was, we couldn't have actually done a better publicity photo if we tried, and it was yeah. just completely off the cuff. Hub. Everybody in the community can come and pay whatever they can and have the food. The food's got to go. If anything, we, we encourage the homeless people to come. And then at the back, this is hundreds where... Hundreds and hundreds of nasturtiums. This is my favourite plant in the garden, which is like the nasturtium plant. So you've got three parts. You've got the leaf, the seed and the, the flower. So, so a lot, lot of that going in your cooking like wasabi peas. So if you try mm. that, it's like a wasabi pea. It's peppery wow. burst of energy and then the wow. leaf has a completely different sort of flavour and wow, texture. it's hot. Mm -hmm. Good isn't it? And then yeah Ooh. so we actually pick all our salads hand picked per salad. So I noticed there's this big long table over here. Do people actually interact a little bit? Does that, I do encourage that? We used to have lots of little tables scattered around but we then thought the big banqueting tables are cool because you sit down and you're like you are sat next to another group of people and you are maybe like forced to almost have a chat with them. Well, people generally do, don't it's they? It's weird. But we have yeah. a really, like, nice sort of vibe when people come, they do sort of interact. It's like, a lot of restaurants you go to, it's very much you sit down, you get your food, you go, and you don't ever talk to the person on the table next to you, really. But here it's, don't know how or why, it's not like we've encouraged it, um, but people just, maybe it's the sort it's of the person setup, who comes And I think well. it's the way that it is here, and I think that yeah. because the volunteers are so relaxed and we don't have sales targets, we don't have anything like that, I think because of that people just come in and actually stay in for a while, chat to each other, just have quite a nice time. Okay, we're nothing special, we've just got a lot of great people behind us who are passionate about what we do. And we used to think that you needed all these expertise and all of this and all of that, but it's not at all. If you've got the drive and like, you've got to have drive, that's what it is. And like, 
you just, some days you'll be at your lowest of low thinking it's not worth it but then you've got all these amazing people around you volunteering that just will change that in a second you'll come in and everyone will be like what are you doing like we've got this or this or we always find when something bad happens two good things happen straight after it yeah. don't they it's, it's such a weird like karma sort of balance and that's what I love about this place it's ever evolving like we have people who come like a month later and they're like where's this come from where's that <laughs> where's all from? that it like, didn't look where's like this last time it's like but that's what the project's about it's when we make money, we change things, we build it. We build it. What was that you bit into there, pal? Was it a chilli? No, no, it was a nasturtium bud. Um, they, they look like little chickpeas and they're green and they're super hot but oh, really right. tasty. And you still managed um, to carry on with the interview. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, was, so it was pretty fiery. Um, just to let you know that the Save the Date Cafe are closed at the moment um, until the 18th of September because they're doing a refurb on their kitchen. Um, they're making a much bigger kitchen in a container. But um, you can go there um, from the 18th and they're open on Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Great. Thanks very much. So now we have Chris Belson in the studio with us, a singer-songwriter, who's going to play us um, a tune in a little while. But first, we just had a, wanted to have a, a quick chat with you. Um, thanks so much for coming in, Chris. Welcome to Eastcast. Thanks for having me. Coast. It's really nice of you to have me. Um, so you grew up in Wellingborough in the Midlands, didn't you? Is that where you started writing your music? Yeah, yeah. Um there's not a lot to do in Wellingborough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember my parents coming home on a whim with a kind of old Spanish guitar they brought for about six pounds from a bric-a-brac shop. And just so, you know, they could encourage maybe us to play around with it. And I kind of took to it and, um, and started kind of uh, very badly covering other people's songs and then gradually writing my own stuff and then kind of started collaborating with people at my local school and um yeah it kind of it went from there mm -hmm. and you've you've worked together with bands in the past but now you're you're solo exactly yeah um i was previously in a band called columbus and crusoe uh, who were a kind of seven piece uh with banjo and accordion and fiddle and all sorts of stuff and um now uh, they've all disbanded and um i've got their own projects that they're focusing on and um and i'm doing the same that's so. good because we wouldn't be able to fit eight of you no. in, the, in the studio <laughs> really. so that's just as well <laughs> um so you've got a, you're working on a new ep how well, tell us about it how would you describe it well um it's kind of uh it was one of those kind of eps that fell together kind of slightly more unconsciously uh, as opposed to sitting down and planning a, a kind of recording um, they're, they're kind of a collective of songs that have uh, have kind of been magnetized together just through similar kind of feelings and themes. Um, uh, it's going to be called Moon Songs. Um, kind of inspired by one of the, the tracks on the, the, the EP called, uh, which kind of explored um, why stereotypically dogs howl at the moon and kind of uh, you know, reflecting on, on kind of how we can kind of understand our own kind of longings and, and pinings through looking at that. Um, yeah, it's not just dogs that howl at the moon. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes, uh, you know, on quiet nights, you might just hear me in, in the distance <laughs> howling away. <laughs> Fantastic. And you got a, you've got you got a gig coming up, haven't you? Where can people see you? 
Yeah, if if, uh, if people would like to come along and see me, my, my next show is um, in Crouch End uh, at a place called Kiss the Sky Bar for a, a lovely promoter called Softly Softly who um, put on completely unplugged shows um, with a few different artists, kind of like a songwriter's kind of circle type thing, but um, no mics, no amps, um, nothing. So. so everyone has to be very quiet. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> no chatting. <laughs> so what are you going to play for us today, Chris? Well, I thought I'd play one of the songs from um, Moon Songs. Um, it's called uh, Without You Again. Fantastic. Okay. Take it away. Oh, thank you. Without you again Without you 
without you again, without you again. Wow, that was utterly beautiful. Thank you so much, Chris, and Thank I'll be seeing much. you in Crouch End, definitely. <laughs> And if you like what you hear, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at East Coast Show or check out all our interviews, listings and music online at eastcastshow.com and on iTunes. You can sign up to our monthly newsletter so you get all our audio news straight to your inbox. You're listening to East Coast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Now, earlier this summer, I was invited onto a canal boat in East London to hear Genevieve Kay's experiences of living on the waterways and why she thinks the Olympic summer of 2014 2012 disrupted her idyllic lifestyle. My mom took me to San Francisco to visit some old friends in the early 70s, mid-70s I guess, and I remember the, the village of boaters and being inside some woman's boat and a cat on the boat and the garden vines hanging down the window from inside and I, and I kind of, it imprinted on me, you know. Genevieve is a life coach, a masseuse, an aromatherapist, and a long-time member of the canal community. I spoke to her on her canal boat, Come Shop, Come Studio, while she was moored at Broadway Market in East London. When I arrived, she was working on the deck, in a green boiler suit, dismantling old furniture for firewood with her hands. She's living a life that many people dream of, freedom to move her house whenever and wherever she wants, her and her husband maintaining it, relying on themselves and their resourcefulness to keep everything working. She tells me in a dreamy way about a visit to a canal boat as a child, where she felt she was in a perfect treehouse, only on water. It was the romance of the physical space and the independent, nomadic way of living that drew her towards boats. She loved the idea of being in a vessel, close to nature, and not only wanting to move around, but having to. The actual community of boaters and how she would fit into that didn't figure in her plan. And I didn't really think at all about what other people might be around. <laughs> it didn't even occur. I'm like, ducks, swans, I'm good. Mm. And shortly after we moved on, someone said, oh, yeah, the canals are the longest village in England. Yeah. And my brain went, wow, they go a long distance. But you are, if, if you are continuously cruising and not just going to, from A to B to A to B, you will come across people that you saw like four months ago. And you will have had maybe a cup of tea with them or maybe they helped you figure out how to chop your wood or you just saw them and they had a nice smile. But the, the effect of the reunion of, hey, I know you, I recognize your boat, you're so kind of pleased with yourself that you have a footprint and a memory. And so for me, that was a really big surprise. So Genevieve and her husband became part of the biggest village in England. She told me about how, when they first moved onto the boat as novices, it was during a winter so cold that the canals froze over. They had two weeks to move the boat to London, relying only on their wits and the research they'd done. It was a steep learning curve. They had to learn how to drive the boat, how to operate a lock, how to operate a swing bridge, how to light a log fire, how to keep a fire going overnight, how not to hit your head in the night, how to tell people where you are with no reference points or a postcode. But the watery community they'd become part of looked after its own. The boaters, the villagers they shared the canalways with, had all been at the start of this curve themselves, and people helped Genevieve and her husband. The community taught them how to chop wood properly, how to look after the battery in your generator so it didn't drain down, 
how to live on a boat. If you know that no one is taking care of business and you care that the business gets taken care of, the assumption is that we will take care of each other and we'll stop putting power structures in place to take accountability and we'll take accountability more ourselves. So that's what I like about it, is that if you see a boat floating in the middle of, of the canal, people will do their best to tie it up again and find the person who, you know what I mean. This way of living has recently been put under pressure. Ironically, an event that united us land dwellers, inspired whole platforms at King's Cross Station to cheer in unison, has been the cause of huge changes to the canal boating community. Genevieve thinks that the London 2012 Olympics might have done damage to the community that is beyond repair. There were massive closures to the waterways during that summer, meaning people couldn't move around, and at the same time, hundreds flocked to buy boats on London's canals to experience the sporting festival on the cheap. The canals became more polluted and congested, the wildlife suffered, while the old conviviality started to fade. The story in my head is that basically there was this rush of people coming in, the system couldn't keep up with it, and instead of going, right, let me make a little extra effort, people went, well, ugh, he's throwing his beer can there, I'll throw mine there too. And that attitude seems to have stuck a bit, and, there, and, and there, there's a sense of, well, you know, the agency that's meant to manage the waterways has done such a bad job, why should I try? When my attitude is, if they're doing a bad job, we need to do better this is our home. It did feel, in my little naive mind, like back then, most of us were, we had, we had very different opinions about how things should be done, but we all wanted to take responsibility for what we could. Now, there's too many, there's too many people with their own agendas, and the attitude is very much like, well, if the rules aren't clear, I'm going to do whatever I want. During the interview, there was a little reminder of the way things had been. While we were talking, one of Genevieve's neighbours, who she hadn't met before, dropped by to say hello. They chatted about chakras and yoga. And when her guest complained of a hangover, Genevieve made her up a blend of natural essences to clear her head. I imagined ringing my next-door neighbour's doorbell and telling them I had a hangover. Oh, yeah? The resulting oh, scenario in my head was quite different. On? Only six months. Wow. Well, since June last year. OK. Actually, yeah. Yeah, it's been a year. Yeah, Congratulations. Wow. <laughs> You've come a full year. I've noticed more and more people living on the canal. I wonder, you know, what Genevieve would think about this whole new community since the Olympics. It's um, it's a tricky one. It's, it's a big a, change for a small community. Yeah, of course. Um, so in keeping with our canal Olympic theme, and yeah, I don't know what that the canal boat community would think about this, and you may not even have heard about this massive gen- regeneration project that is underway Um, that's about to totally transform the canal side of the Olympic Park, where the media centre was located during the Games. We are pumping over 100 million into this place. To take it from what it was in the Games time, which was a functional but pretty ugly space, to turn it into something which is very creative, very animate, My name is Gavin Paul. I'm fortunate enough to be the chief exec of a scheme called Here East, which is taking the former International Broadcast Centre on the Olympic Park and turning it into a new creative and digital cluster in Hackney, sitting adjacent to Hackney Wick.
We are still in a stage of transition. Uh, we've got just under a year to go. So by July uh, 2016, everything will be finished and we'll have tenants coming in and fitting out spaces. We've already um, announced a number of those tenants. So Loughborough University, they opened this September in the old press centre. Space Studios will be on the gantry in late 2016. Studio Wayne McGregor will be opening late 2016, early 17. University College London are coming here with an element of the Bartlett School of Design and Architecture and also UCL with their Centre for Robotics also coming here. We have a data centre uh, and then the Innovation Centre, uh, we envisage that in the second half of 2016 we will have a very large Innovation Centre which will enable companies to move here, um, start up and grow and get business support, access to those wishing to invest in their companies, event space, creative space, workspace, incubator space, and then move into managed offices when they're ready to do that movement. And then finally is, is the theatre, which we anticipate will be late 2016, early 2017, with a conferencing facility as well. And it puts a new destination in this part of London, which will satisfy a 500 to 1,500 person event and conference. You say you're working with Space, what's their involvement? What are they going to be doing? So space Studios uh, and our organisation, we started to get to know each other in late 2011, early 2012, uh, when we were bidding for these buildings. And we recognised the value of taking these buildings and turning it into a very creative and digital campus, but recognising that across the canal, separated by this massive steel fence whilst the games were being built and then delivered, was this extraordinary creative talent and sort of cluster in its own right which we wanted to engage in and say uh, we think you're part of what we want to do we have common vision common aims uh, space studio stood out as an organization which were already running a large amount of studios across east london and we started talking to them saying look we need some studios within our facility for us to stay true to our vision and to really embed within us the creative element which will spurn new businesses, particularly in digital art and digital installations. So what that's led to is a, an arrangement where they will have built um, on our gantry a very creative set of about 24 different studios, which Space Studios will manage on our behalf. So they've helped us in our design. They've helped us make sure that we reach the right creative talent that we want, uh, and we know the demand is there. We're now moving into delivery phase. And that means that whilst the buildings behind us at the moment are being fitted out and transformed into their final form, that we have these great, big, large, 24-metre-high, 60-metre-deep atrium spaces. And our approach is to work with Space Studio and with others as well. How do we make sure we get the right type of installation, the right type of art, which represent and showcase the best talent we see here in East London as opposed to going further afield? I mean, that's quite interesting because I remember when it was the Olympics and there were a lot of businesses and studios opened for business in Hackwick and they were very disappointed at the lack of business that they got through the Olympics. They thought it would be a kind of opportunity for people to come to the studios, people would be curious, people would use the cafes and restaurants in Hackneywick. It didn't happen. It was very confined. So I imagine that's a conversation you've been having a lot about how to bridge this divide between this ultra-modern area which is top-down, not being built and grown organically as Hackneywick has done. What are the relationships that you've been building and how have you managed to put 
people at ease on the other side of the canal? So since we started the whole bid process, so it's all in the rights to these buildings, we've engaged extensively in the local area and we've had those people working with us to make sure that we are listening as opposed to being heard. We can't address some of the things that happened in the Olympics. It was before our involvement in this site. But for us looking at it, it was quite an obvious barrier. Everybody was channelled through the eastern side of the park so it's kind of understandable why it happened, and, and I can understand the disappointment and the frustration. What we need to do now is make sure that we act almost like a handshake between both the park and that community. So working with people like the Hackneywick Cultural Interest Group, with the newly formed Creative Work, and people like Will Chamberlain, investing in the Barbican Fish Island Labs, we saw that as a fantastic opportunity to support that project to make sure that there was space now for people desperate for studio space and getting the type of support and event space that they need to actually showcase what they're really fantastic at doing and use that as a springboard to start pump finding some of the activity we see here. So we've been very, very active. Let's not do something which is going to be seen as a big spaceship landing on the northwest corner of the park, which no one can come to because it's actually for this type of people. We want it to be absolutely open to all. We know that the type of businesses and people we want here and are appealing to to come and join us on this journey um, has a certain type of restaurant, coffee shop and event culture which goes alongside that. So creating our new destination for retail on the canal side, we've just targeted independents. Some it may be their first restaurant, they're coming from a street food scene and they're ready to make the jump into a, an established outlet. So we're helping them establish themselves and likewise, there may be others who have already got a brand and looking for their second venue. They're the type of people that we're building a mix down by our canal side to add into that, what we already see going on over in, in Hackney Wick. So when you say helping, does that mean affordable space? So there's, there's a, a real mix. Yeah, we have affordable space, which is through the Space Studios initiative, which is why we've partnered up with Space Studios. Secondly, with the retail, this is a brand new, untested site. So when you're putting new retailers who've never had a, a restaurant or coffee shop or bar before... There's an element of flexibility that we have to have in supporting them through that journey, and we're prepared to do that. Now, whether it's cash incentives or there's lend freeze, that's what we're working through with these individuals. We've also got to be mindful that we are pumping over 100 million into this place before you can see anything going on. Now it's fully glazed. It sounds awful and, and sort of corporate, but with the designs and the, the atriums and the, the way it's broken up into different segments means that actually it's very visible, the type of things that we can see going on. We're calling ourselves London's Home for Making mainly because some of the businesses we're bringing in and also some of the facilities we want to see here, particularly around rapid prototyping, design studios, fabrication. It's a bit like going around the back of Central St Martins. Very, very active, lots of machinery, lots of people doing manufacturing, lots of people doing design. So, yes, there's affordable space. We've also got to make a return to so being realistic. And if you're appealing across over a million square feet, and you want large companies and small companies. You know, small companies can only afford certain things. So we're having to be, take a long-term strategic view on some of these decisions of who's coming in and how they're coming in. Having a data centre here means that we've got resilience, we've got lots of power, we've got lots of standby power. But it also means all the telecom operators want to plug into a data centre. That means we can plug into them too. And we can run a fibre network around the site, which gives a lot of choice to tenants when they're here. So the thing that concerns me a little bit is we've got Westfield over there on the other side of the park. It has a lack of soul and I can understand what they were trying to do. They've made it into this shopping village and tried to make it as convivial as possible. 
So I'm wondering, yes, it's great to get all these street food and new businesses, but how can you create that soul? Listening, talking to people. I think the key word for us and uh, the people who've been working on the brand with us, and there's like a small group for the strategic vision setting and, and making sure we're true to what we say we're going to do, is about authenticity. So you know, when we have the independents down on the canal side, they are actually proper independents who are throwing their life and soul into making a particular location work, making sure we get the right events program, that those events are appealing not just to the people who are working and operating within the Here East, which is between five and 6,000 people we, we anticipate, but also it's appealing as a destination that people from the Wick and the surrounding areas also want to come here and participate in our events because we want not just them to listen to what things we're putting on, but actually we want them to bring what they've got and come over here and put the events on, and also for people from here to go over to Hackney Wick and experience what's going on there. We don't want to suck the life out of the Wick. It's a handshake between two organisations. So it's interesting you, know, you mentioned about it's about getting that soul of the place. I think we're spending a lot of time curating this, this environment and you know, talking to a lot of people who have done projects where you're trying to curate an environment you have to spend a lot of time making sure you get the right people, share your vision, share your values, are committed to the project, and actually going to add real value in terms of the cultural and social aspect as opposed to cash terms. I think we've got that right. Now, you know, the proof will be in about five years' time, but we just need to keep on top of it and make sure we're working with the right people, we're listening to concerns, and we're getting to the right areas. If we get that right, then it's a huge success. Kevin Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. So when I went to look around last month, it's still very much a massive building site. Um, you can't see any of this yet. Um, but I think it's going to be really interesting mm. to see how this place develops over it's the next few years. The people there must be like, oh, my God, it's a building site again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another exactly. major development with 100 million or yeah. crazy amount of money. Yeah. Lots of money being pumped into the, the area. Um, so now for a very different take on a waterside development. I meet artist in residence, uh, Stephen Shiel, who takes me on a tour of a hidden oasis in a Newham industrial estate, Cody Dock. Hi, I'm Stephen Shiel, and I am the artist in residence at a community art space called Cody Dock. And we are on a road called South Crescent, which is part of an industrial estate in Canning Town. So here we're standing under... At the gate. Next door is a light industrial unit that gets rented out, and that was rented out to a group of people called Ardmore. And Ardmore have got some mad peppercorn rate deal that's like a 400-year lease where they pay a pound or something, and they're probably one of the biggest developers in London. And they squatted this site... And they put this gate here, which is actually blocking the access to this amazing site, which is the right of, a public right-of-way. And it's the reason why they got kicked off, and it's the reason why we exist. Our CEO, Simon Myers, thought this was a really interesting site, and investigated. It took him about 10 years to find out who owned it. What. And with the council, they took Ardmore to court and booted them off because they put this gate on it and that was their biggest mistake <laughs> and it was the one technicality that got them kicked off 
which then bore this wonderful project, which is in East London. And now we have been here for three years. And as artist resident, this is my first commission. Yeah. So let's walk through the gate. So when we first came here, all this was all buddlier and it was just full of wildlife as well. And it was full of lots of building rubble and we cleared it. And because we took a lot of the, you know, nature out, the wildlife was like kind of dependent on that. So we built all these containers with um, volunteers and we made a permaculture wildflower meadow with trees in it. So let's keep going. This is a gallery where we do like community art workshops and stuff. This was donated by, I think, Adidas. It was a pop-up shop for them. At the moment, there's a Coney Dock Art School and lots of different kinds of things from printmaking to sculpture to all kinds of um, artistic endeavours was happening here. You're originally an artist, or yeah. you're still an artist, but yeah. you've obviously had to become a gardener, a <laughs> landscaper, a yeah. builder. Has this kind of changed your life? Yes and no. I think I kind of brought those skills to it. Gardening's been a love of mine since I was a small kid. My grandparents were like that make-do-and-men generation. So I really got a, my green thumbs from those two. When I was at art school, I minored in public art and in that I found quickly work within making public spaces. So my career for the last 25 years has actually been making like other nursery playgrounds, playgrounds, uh, community gardens and working with landscape architects. But here I've had to, which has kind of changed my life, do it all with the help of other people in the community and you do meet interesting individuals that come and go oh, I've got these skills I'll bring it to the you know to the table and then we've gone and helped you know because I always went into like other areas of well the beginning of gentrification or areas of change or areas that were socially you know suffering and I was pretty much an artistic band-aid I used to call myself and would go in to kind of places that were kind of struggling and then try to come up with an artistic kind of a solution or to make people feel more empowered by becoming stronger as a group and art was just a vehicle of something but really what the purpose was was to become confident that they could speak up for themselves and to ask for change and to inform themselves in a better way of understanding how things can happen and then here was like wow we were from a beginning like so instead of going into a place where it's had a lot of struggle this was like from yeah beginning and as soon as they moved in, I was like, I'm in. I'm, I, so I left my studio in Hackney Wick and came and jumped into a container. Let's go and have a look at this container. Yeah, it's, it's grim. <laughs> I think the first thing you notice yeah. is the noise of the generator. I guess you get used to it. But in it was... September, this September 2015, we're getting power. For, oh. Obviously for sound, it's not the best. No, it's not. It's rubbish. And I, I don't make any sound. But it's like a script. I think we're going to move out of here yeah, just because no. the generator's noise is bonkers, not not the best for radio. It ain't. No, it ain't. Here we have um, a boat which isn't yes. on the water. It's called the River Princess, and it's just been turned into a, a, a cafe, which is yeah. a lovely idea. So when we finally got this site and it was cleared, and we had done all of the clearing, but we took it and landed it in dry dock, which is now been our like kind of community hub in space for a while now. Oh, it's lovely. I've had many a good evening in there. I can imagine. Well, I've started in the last year a group called Cody Cultivators. And basically it's to encourage people to come and do things that are a green and ecological based projects here. 
I've done a couple of little festivals of urban growing because there's a lot of high density housing being built in Newham. I reckon they reckon, what is it, 500,000 new homes in the next couple of years. And they're all in balconies, they've all got really small containers, and which we've all got small containers. So we're starting to learn a lot about how do you grow in small spaces. So I've been championing this idea of like, urban growing and doing like kind of foraging walks. But every Wednesday I run a self taught gardening project. Should we go over One of the our bridge? successes as Cody cultivators was we got a Pockets Parks budget an award um, to build a permanent garden here this side that we're on now which is kind of south side of Cody Dock was a lot lower for the London flood defences that we had this opportunity to be able to do a bit of hard landscaping where the other side is actually okay so that's why on that side all of the gardens are all in containers but this side we were able to lay lawns and actually do a bit of hard landscaping What's this thing in the water over here? Oh, God, yeah. It's a geodesic dome. The walls of the dock are at a slant, and there's a natural reverb in there for about five to six seconds. And I had this idea of putting a choir together while making it and thinking that would be a really good idea. And to get people to notice this as an art space, one of the great things that I've found quite inspiring is it's a bit of a blank canvas. So you can actually do some stuff. So I did actually put a choir together called Breathing Space and I put them on a platform there with speakers, floating speakers, and we had about 300 people watching them. We've got all these plants in this garden and then yeah. you look over the, the other side and it's... Bleak. Bleak, industrial, cranes And the building, city. The city kind of... Yeah. looming over. over and you've got this little oasis going on here it's really lovely isn't it it's quite special and also i think that's really special here is this arcing back to like the canal being or the river being tidal i think really beautiful like it's not the navigational canal the canal always just against man-made but this actually is one of the estuaries from the Thames. so for kind of september october time yeah. what can people Experience here. Experience here. What have you got going on for the well, next kind of autumn but, season? Well, we mentioned the Lee. The Lee's amazing. It used to be called Lugus, which was an old pre-Roman name for it. It's a free-headed deity, a Celtic deity, about bringing people together and celebrating people being together. I do these sonic explorations called Luguses, where we take over the whole site and turn them into a sonic array of of, of different spaces. So. It's not a conventional idea of like on a stage or in a gallery, but just taking them out in the, into you know, the wider content of the, of the space. People go on boats, they go inside the dock, you know, they go all over the show. We've got one plan for next year, which is all going to be about the body and how the body is used in sound. We're getting power in September, so I don't know what we're going to be doing. So, so we that might, changes a lot of things. It changes a lot of things, actually, and yeah. water as well, <laughs> which is going to so change. So we're becoming civilised. We're becoming civilised. I don't know, watch this space in some ways, like, because uh, we are in the middle of something quite in interesting that's happening in Canning Town and in this part of East London. We are going to find ourselves in a very interesting spot. I think we're going to become a really interesting resource for all different groups of people in the community. This space needs more people. I think sometimes we struggle 
and it's down to determination and certain individuals that push things forward. But the more people get involved in this, the better. So that's like a little call out there, really. It is. Yeah, come down and get involved. You know, we are going to, you know, the vision is to have about, I don't know, 50 live work units down here, communal woodwork spaces, eco startup businesses, all kinds of stuff. I think the thing is that it's, even though there is a vision, I think it's the people that make it happen. That's what this space really needs. It needs really interested individuals that have got a vision and they've got the determination and the self, you know, motivation to make something happen. And I think that can happen here. Great, interesting to hear the the two last interviews back to back. You know, the mega bucks versus the artist with a dream. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I did that on purpose. Yeah, you know. did you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and um, I just wanted to say also that um, some of the sounds that you heard in the background in in that interview. Um, were compositions uh, by Stephen Schill. And he was part of a project that I went to on Sunday called the Bisonic Institute, which um, was a project created by a sound artist, Kath Matthews. And she uh, and a group of people fitted out a load of bikes with speakers and GPS units and as you and different uh, composers and sound artists made special uh, sounds for each bike and you'd rent out a bike well they'd give you a bike and then you'd cycle around London fields and as you pass different spots um, you get sounds mm. from Hackney and music and all sorts of things and it was a lot of fun yes. so Stephen Shaw did one of the um, compositions that for does that. sound like a lot of fun just thinking about what you said there does seem to be a bit of a theme emerging in the interviews that we've got this evening with regeneration and the Olympics and the canal side but isn't it funny that the Olympic legacy seems to be more about space now, really, than sports? Mm. That's kind of the, la- the lasting conversation that people are having is how the space is, is used in that area. Yeah, I guess the sports bit is already done. It's yeah. like there's the velodrome and the pool and, that's, and the track, and that seems to be it, really. That's um, it, yeah. yeah. So, yes, it is about space and what they're going to do in the park with all this space. Yeah. So next up, uh, slightly different, uh, but still all in the same geographical area. Um, the film starring Tom Hardy um, uh, called Legend um, is out at the moment. And Tom Hardy plays both Reggie and Ronnie Cray. Um, so we thought it fitting to look back at an interview that we did uh, a little while back with musician Matt Johnson, who grew up in the Two Puddings uh, pub in Stratford. And he told us about East End life and how his dad, the pub's landlord, served the Crays a pint or two. So Matt, can I ask, what was it like growing up in the in the two puddings? It was a very happy childhood, and um, an odd childhood. But then again, as a child, you don't know any different. You have no comparisons until you go to school, and you realise that your upbringing is slightly odd, I suppose, in a good way. Um, for instance, we were surrounded by um, adults, I suppose, during the day as the when the pub was open. You know, we weren't allowed in the pub, but we would sit on the bottom of the stairs trying to get our mum's attention to get some crisps or some lunch or something and um, talking to the customers and the staff. But also it was um, a very vibrant building. As such a busy pub, 
uh, that part of the 60s in the mid-60s, which is the time I remember. I moved in there in 1962, but I was, two, I was only about one. But by the mid-60s, obviously, I was aware of what was going on. And um, there was always a huge amount of activity, you know, noise. I suppose it's the thing that got me interested in music, actually, because um, you would always hear music coming up through the floorboards. It was a very popular music house, very successful music house, so bands like The Kinks, The Who, Screaming Lord Such, countless other artists of the time played there. And as kids, you know, I wasn't really aware of the significance of who the different artists were, but you would hear the music coming up from the floorboards. And my brothers and I, when the pub was closed, would go down and play on the instruments as well. So there was always music around, and I suppose that must have affected me. But a primary um, memory is that it had a good, positive atmosphere. There was a lot of happiness. I mean, there were violent aspects, but we were too young to really be aware of that. There were lots of fights and punch-ups, but from our point of view, from a child's point of view, there was a good, positive atmosphere. You know, my parents had come from poor backgrounds and they were earning a lot of money, so it was relatively, um, when I say privileged, we had some nice holidays and it was pleasant. I didn't get the feeling of any sort of deprivation at all. You mentioned the music and, that, and how that was an important aspect of the two puddings. I loved the bit in the book about the anecdote about Rod Stewart. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, not only famous bands played there, but a lot of well-known people uh, came in as customers, you know, sportsmen, gangsters, writers, all sorts of people, but also other musicians. And one such musician was um, Rod Stewart, and apparently he would come in regularly just to watch the bands play. One evening, one of the support bands apparently stopped the show and said, we'd just like to give a big round of applause tonight to Rod Stewart in the audience. And everybody looked over at him. And he looked so embarrassed, he drank up and never came back in again. <laughs> You've touched on it a bit already, but, you know, it was this sort of vibrant music scene and a happy time and a happy childhood for you. But there were also elements of quite serious violence in the area, weren't there? Gangs, fights. Did you ever get wind of any of that? Well, we did. We would hear... I mean, we knew that um, our parents were friendly with the Cray twins and also a lot of my dad's very, very close friends were on their inner firm as well. So we would hear stories, and our parents tried to protect us from a lot of that. But, of course, you know, as kids, you sort of... You know, my older brother and I would sort of piece things together. A lot of that territory has been appropriated over the last 20 years by people like um, Guy Ritchie, for instance. But Guy Ritchie was a public school boy or whatever. You know, he knows really nothing about that. But that was something that we really grew up with. These characters that were actually the enforcers for the craze, and they were friends of the family. We were um, aware that um, our family was very well connected in the area. But there was no glorification of it. That's another difference. You know, you see these recent films where people brag about it. It was very, very sort of discreet in a lot of ways. My family were not looking for any trouble. They just wanted to run a business, run a nice pub, but if a pub was particularly successful, it may be targeted. So you had to be strong enough to deal with that. And so there'd be various um, nuisances, as they were called. How was the process of you and your dad working on this book together? It was great, actually. Well, my family's very creative because my... My older brother is a painter. He used to illustrate all my uh, album sleeves, Andrew. My younger brother is a filmmaker, and I score his films. He's just working on a new feature film, and I'm scoring that at the moment. It was working with my dad. I'm very close with my dad. We were a very close family. And um, these stories have been knocking around for years. And because he was 80 this year, and because it was... Or last year, I should say, 2012, and it was the 50th anniversary of us going into the puddings, the Olympics were coming to Stratford, it seemed essential that something was done about it 
I thought, well, if I don't do it, nothing's going to happen. So I said, give me everything you've got, just hand them over. And um, luckily they were on, uh, you know, computer files because they got him to rewrite stuff. Because he's quite a writer, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he wanted to be a writer and he's been a sort of heavy reader all of his life. But the way that life tends to work, you end up, you know, you have a family, you've got to support the family, you end up not doing what you want to do. But I just got all this information. I spent about three or four months in my um, writing studio, big jug of coffee every day, just going through it, through it, through it. Because it was in no structure, so I structured the whole thing and had to make a certain amount of editing, tightening it up. And I worked with him on it, so it's obviously his voice all the way through. I've been very, very careful not to insert myself into it. And um, gave it a structure. It was interesting because working on it, I was flooded with so many memories, the sort of sounds, the smells of people of growing up in the pub as a little boy. It was quite overwhelming at times, actually. It was quite poignant and quite emotional for me because all sorts of things that I'd completely forgotten about that weren't even in the book or not even things that he necessarily had written down but triggered floods of emotions. What's where the two puddings was? What's there now? Well, I went down there a couple of months ago because we were thinking of having a book signing there. And we were sort of horrified. The building is still there, but it's now called uh, Swaggers. <laughs> looks like a lap-dancing club from Rumford or something. It was horrible. And um, there was a chap who was friendly enough to actually show us all around, and our sort of heart sunk a bit. But at least the building is still there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So if you've seen the film, read the book, done the tour, and you still want to know more about the Quay, Twi Quay Twins, you can also go to an exhibition called Legend of the East End at the Cass Archive in Bethnal Green, and it's only on until the 11th of September. Um, it features previously unseen photographs from the time. Thanks, Danielle. And so you may have seen via our Twitter and Facebook, we've, um, we're starting the new term with a call-out for audio submissions from you, our listeners. So it could be music, spoken word, field recordings, interviews, all along the theme of the London Underground. And that's because we're very close to getting 24-hour tube at the weekends. Who knows when that's actually going to happen? It was supposed to be on the 20th or the 12th or the 20th, I can't remember, but it's not happening in September, but it should happen soon. So whether you agree with it or not, it's always a thorny issue. But it certainly sparked some people's imaginations so far. And we've already had some brilliant submissions. So for details and guidelines, just go to eastcastshow.com. You're listening to Eastcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at Eastcast Show or check out all our interviews, listings, music online at eastcastshow.com and on iTunes. So it's nearly time for us to say goodbye. But before we do, I have to mention that Chris Belson, who you heard from earlier, his gig is on the 20th of September in Crouch End, which he forgot to say earlier. Um, and I'll see you there. To finish this evening, we're going to hear the first of many audio submissions as part of our Sound of the London Underground project. Here's Pocket Satellite with Leave Your Metro. Thanks for listening. Something small passed you by You had missed your opportunity to shine in crowds of people You would hide behind your metro on the side He would run, she could dance If they could and they could once when they were someone just like you 
Thank、you.